Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. It has been a huge honor to be Prime Minister. Mistakes were made. And I have been elected Rishi Sunak to fix them. Active shooter at the high school. We need additional action to stop the scourge of gun violence. Whether we uh, maintain control of the Senate and the House is a big deal. Russians' allegation the Ukrainians use a dirty bomb. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. Two weeks and about three hours from uh, right now, we'll begin to see the results of the midterm election. And uh, there are numerous polls that have come out. There's not been a lot of polling on North Carolina specifically. We had a new poll come out today from Civitas and the John Locke Foundation. Mitch Kokai is senior political analyst with the John Locke Foundation. He joins us now. Mitch, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're getting really close to the election. Putting that timeline on it really puts it in perspective. Uh, It's not far off at all now. I mean, two weeks will be gone in the blink of an eye. So many of these polls are all pointing in the same direction. We did see some fluctuation back and forth back, eh, you go back to June, maybe even into August. But the last 60 days seems like the momentum is really building for the Republicans. And your poll, which came out today, seems to verify that. It certainly does, especially when you compare the results that we have from this Civitas poll to the last Civitas poll roughly a, a month ago. And you'll see that in almost every respect, when you have the head-to-head race between Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate, the Republican is in better shape now than at the last time. The headline race, of course, being the U.S. Senate contest for the open seat being vacated by Richard Burr because of his retirement. Two polls ago, we had Democrat Sherry Beasley and Republican Ted Budd running neck-and-neck the exact same percentage, 42.3%. The last time around, Sherry Beasley had a very slight lead, well within the the margin of error. I think it was 0.3 percentage points that she was leading. Now, in our latest Civitas poll, basically, Ted Budd has a four-point lead, just a little shy of 47% for him, 43% for Sherry Beasley. Still within the outer limits of our margin of error, because this poll has a margin of error that's just under 4%. So it's not a case of Ted Budd being able to look at this saying, aha, the race is mine, now I can just sit back home and kick up my feet. Uh, there's still work to do, but certainly he's in much better shape now than he was uh, during our last polling uh, encounter. And, uh, of course, the news is looking good for other Republicans on the ballot. If you look at the generic ballot for Congress and for legislature, and, of course, we don't vote for generically Republicans or generically Democrats, but that does give you kind of a clue of where people are leaning. In both cases, Republicans hold a majority uh, over the Democrats of about 50 percent to 44 percent, a six-point advantage, and that is up on the legislative side. That was up from just a two-point advantage in our last Civitas poll about a month ago. And on the congressional side, that six-point advantage is up from a three-percentage-point advantage the last time around. So things moving in the Uh, Republicans' direction, looking at the two state Supreme Court races, which are very important because uh, these races will determine which party has a majority on the court. In both cases, the Republican uh, uh, has an uh, advantage that is beyond the margin of victory. 
In the case of Richard Dietz running against Lucy Inman for an open seat, about a six-and-a-half-point margin. In the case of Trey Allen running against incumbent Democrat Sam Jimmy Irvin IV, he has a seven-point margin. And so I think in both of those cases, you have to say the Republican has to feel pretty good about where things stand because that's well beyond the margin of error in our poll. When you do this polling and then you look back on the actual election results, it it just seems curious that you would have Trey Allen with a seven and a half point percentage lead over Sam Irvin, and yet Ted Budd is just at 4%. When you get to the actual elections, do you find that most of those numbers come together in in a closer percentage? In most cases, you certainly see some of that, that that the races top and down of the ballot seem to be a little bit closer to sort of a a generic 51-49, 52-48 margin, depending on the election. But I think it is a source of at least interest, if not outright concern, for Ted Budd that he's been running a little bit lower than the generic Republican. That certainly has been something we have seen throughout this campaign. Uh, I I think the latest numbers look pretty good for him, but he has been running behind the the generic Republican. I think that's because Sherry Beasley fairly early on realized that if she was going to get any attention from the national Democrats and any money coming from both the party and also the outside groups, that she was going to have to show that she was going to that she could be competitive in this race. And so she very early on started attacking Ted Budd as uh, overly Trumpy or too extreme for North Carolina. And I think that had an impact. People who have actually looked at the record, seen Ted Budd, heard from him, would say, you know, this is a guy who's in the mainstream of the conservative part of the Republican Party. He is not what you are seeing in some other states where they have uh, nominated someone who is seen as a little bit outside of the, the mainstream of the Republican Party. Thanks in no small part, to help from Democrats who tried to get these folks nominated over other Republicans so they could try to beat them in the general election. In this case, Ted Budd is certainly within the mainstream of the Republican Party, and I think that the fact that Sherry Beasley had such an early attack against him probably did have an impact. Plus, you also had, uh, fairly early on in this campaign, the folks who were supporters of Pat McCrory and Mark Walker, in some respects, being still a little sour on mm-hmm. Ted Budd. Good now, point. as we get close, now as we get closer to the election, people are saying, "Whatever you really think about Ted Budd, do you really want Sherry Beasley in that position? Do you really want to give the Democrats a chance to hold control over the U.S. Senate, or do you say Ted Budd, whatever I think about him personally, is going to be?" probably a reliable vote for the Republicans on Capitol Hill. And I think that is swaying Republican-leaning voters, even the McCrory and Walker supporters, back toward the Republican fold. We're talking to Mitch Kokai. He's the senior political analyst with the John Locke Foundation. Civitas had their latest poll released today. By the way, if you want to see more details on this poll, go to carolinajournal.com. It's their lead story up there right now. Um, Mitch, it, it is interesting that um, the, the huge leads the Republican uh, Supreme Court justices have over both of their opponents. Uh, now, what, do you, what did you attribute this to? This is not the first election where they're going to be identified by an R or a D, but uh, it, it's, it's rather curious uh, 
do you do you think this is a reflection of how activist the Democrats have been on the North Carolina Supreme Court? I think that certainly is playing a role in it. I think it's also a sign of the the role that crime is playing in yeah. the election as well. But uh, for whether it's right or wrong, I think people look at judges and say. If you know nothing else about the judge or a justice and their record, that you would guess that a Republican judge or justice is going to be a little tougher on crime, and that's how they're responding. We saw, you, you mentioned, this is not the first election that the R's and D's have been back with the, the names of the candidates for these races, but we also saw in the last cycle, 2020, Republicans won every statewide judicial race. They won all five seats on the State Court of Appeals, all of them at about a 51-49 margin. They won three seats on the state Supreme Court in both cases of uh, Justice Philberger Jr. and Tamara Berenger. It was in that 51-49, 52-48 margin. The Chief Justice's race was closer. Of course, uh, Paul Newby won by 401 votes. Right. But still, that was an 8-for-8 eight eight sweep for Republicans, and I think you're seeing probably that same sort of mindset this time around. And the fact that people have been seeing uh, more uh, crime problems in recent years and saying, look, we want people who are on the bench who are tough. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is the Supreme Court deals less with that. They're not the trial judges deciding what to happen. They, they deal more with constitutional issues, but they do deal with issues that sometimes have to do with hardened criminals and whether they're going to get new trials or whether they'll have a death penalty reduced to life in prison or in the case of uh, convicted juvenile murderers, whether they can actually end up serving a life sentence or whether they would have to face the possibility of parole after 30 or 40 years, which is a decision that, as as you described it, an activist, Democratic-led state Supreme Court decided. They said that you know after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that said uh, that you had to take new factors into account for juveniles who've been committed of the most heinous crimes, they decided that there was a, a time limit on the amount of time a juvenile could spend uh, before they would have a chance for parole, that time limit being 40 years. And that was something that the Democratic court basically just invented. It wasn't something written in the Constitution. They decided that 40 years was long enough. There was a blistering dissent from the Republicans on that case. And for people who are paying attention, they see that sort of thing. Uh, your poll goes into the state legislature in that you say Republicans have made similar gains in the races for the state legislature with 50.1% of voters planning to vote Republican. That's up 3.5% from the last time you polled at 46.6%, which I assume was about a month ago. Do you think, now obviously that was more of a generic question. It wasn't specifically for a candidate. Obviously you'd have to have a pretty big budget to poll for all the candidates. But do you think that Republicans will get their supermajority? I think it's going to be very close. As you pointed out, that polling question is is a generic one saying, uh, are you more likely to vote for a Republican or a Democrat? We know that that's not the way people vote for legislature or Congress. They are candidates who are running against each other. And because of the way election maps are drawn, there are many districts that only a Democrat is going to win, and there are many districts that are only a Republican is going to win. So you really are looking at a handful of districts in both the state House and the state Senate that will determine whether the Republicans get their majorities. They need to get a net gain of three seats in the state House 
and a net gain of two seats in the state Senate to do it. I think it's going to be close, but I think that this particular poll suggests that that goal is a little bit more achievable now than we might have said it was going to be a few months back, especially after the Dobbs decision and Democrats appeared to have kind of a surge in their candidacy. I think at that time you would have said Republicans are going to win control of both the House and Senate, but will probably fall short of supermajorities. I think this latest polling suggests that if they don't win the supermajorities, they'll come pretty close. Speaking of Dobbs, uh, you did get into issues that people are most concerned with. 88.5 Republicans, um, I'm sorry, North Carolinians expressing concern over the price of groceries. 64.7 of voters stating inflation is a primary issue. Abortion, uh, the poll says, is also playing a critical, though lesser, role in voters' decisions. 58% of voters agreeing in its primary issue as a primary issue. You know, what's curious about this, when I read those numbers, I I typically think, okay, well, um, those people are probably uh, more pro-choice, pro-abortion than than they are pro-life. And I thought, well, wait a minute, if I was polled, I'm ardently pro-life, I would have said, yeah, that's that's an issue for me uh, because I am pro-life. And, and, you know, so that number of uh, 58% doesn't necessarily mean 58% are all uh, pro-choice. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's very important in the case of the questions you were just referencing to to give a little bit more detail, because on both the issue of inflation and abortion, what we actually asked is, do you consider those issues to be a primary issue in the campaign? And 65% said, yes, inflation is a primary issue. 58% said abortion is a primary issue, and that would, as you just suggested, include the people who are ardently pro-abortion and those who are ardently pro-life would say, yes, this is a primary issue. This is, this is something about which I, uh, it's really important. Even if it's not something that's driving you, you see it's driving other people. Right. But the next question said, which is the most important issue? And the, the one that got the highest uh, percentage was neither of those, neither inflation nor abortion. It was the economy in general, which got about 31%. Then abortion was next at 18%, and then inflation at 15%. So if you threw the economy and the inflation together, which tend to go together, that's about 46%. People say 46% of them say either the economy or the inflation is the biggest factor for them, 18% said abortion was the biggest factor. So, yes, abortion is a primary issue. Is it the primary issue? Only for 18% of voters. And I think that probably suggests that uh, election campaign ads that all talked about abortion and whether it's, you know, vote for us on the Democratic side because we're going to protect your reproductive rights or vote against the Republicans because they're going to attack your reproductive rights, focusing only on that issue might not have been the best campaign strategy for Democrats, especially when people are going to the store and seeing how much things are costing right, right. Uh, and how much more they're costing now than they were a year ago. Yeah, and the Democrats certainly, and even Sherry Beasley, put a lot of weight into the abortion issue in her in her advertising. The uh, other issue, that, or the other question that you asked, which I found fascinating, let me read it. When asked whether North Carolinians preferred a Democratic governor 
with a Democratic legislature over a Democrat governor with a Republican legislature, the majority of voters preferred the latter, 50.6%, over the former, 39.5%. Now, is that pretty typical, or were those numbers uh, inflated this year because of the partisanship that's going on in Raleigh? You know, that's a very good question, and because we haven't typically asked that question, I'm not sure. The way that it was actually asked was, setting as the baseline, we have a Democratic governor. We're, of course, going to have a Democratic governor at least through 2024, barring some uh, uh, unforeseen circumstance with Roy Cooper. So the question was, do you believe, since we have a Democratic governor, that we should have a Republican-led General Assembly to counterbalance that governor, or should we have a Democratic legislature to help the governor implement his policies? And as you uh, pointed to, more than half of the the, uh, polled voters, 51% almost, said they'd rather have that split government. If you're going to have a Democratic governor, you got to have the balance with the Republican-led General Assembly. And it was uh, almost 40% who thought that and, of course, uh, uh, that has to be almost all Democrats. I can't imagine uh, Republicans said, you know, with a Democratic governor, we ought to have a Democratic legislature. So Democrats said, okay, with a Democratic governor, we ought to have a, a Democratic legislature. But I do think that part of what goes into this is people seeing uh, what the Democratic Party has stood for, what the Republican Party has stood for and said, look, uh, in this case, when we're sort of leaning toward Republicans, Having a Democratic governor and a Democratic legislature would probably put us in a similar situation to what we're seeing in Washington, D.C., with a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and we don't really like what they're doing. Right, right. Uh, Mitch, this is a fascinating uh, poll, especially as you highlight so many races that are going to affect North Carolinians. I mean, we see a lot of national polling, but this specifically, especially especially those uh, two North Carolina Supreme Court uh, seats. Uh, it, it will be if if you're if things work out as your numbers point to, and we have two new Republicans in the North Carolina Supreme Court, we're going to see a lot of backpedaling over the next uh, few months. After uh, well, one, once they uh, are uh, put into uh, their positions, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens next year. Yes, it'll be very interesting, and it'll also change the strategy, I think, uh, on the the left-of-center side, because what we've seen in recent years, especially when Democrats had that 6-1 majority, but even when they've still had this 4-3 majority, is that activists have said, the General Assembly does something we don't like, okay, we'll sue. We'll get the state Supreme Court to fix it for us. They won't be able to do that anymore if Republicans have a 4-3 or even 5-2 majority. Mitch Kokai, Senior Political Analyst at the John Locke Foundation. Again, if you want to uh, look a little more of detail in this poll, go to thecarolinajournal.com or you can go to johnlock.org and hit the polls tab. Uh, that will get you there uh, either way. Uh, Mitch, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Good stuff. Thanks so much, Tom. Have a good evening. You too. Stay with us. I'll be right back. This is your Drive at 5, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in October the 25th, National Greasy Foods Day. You know, there's something good, awful good about greasy food. 
It just sort of slides down. Now, after you uh, eat too much of it, you don't feel too good. But uh, I tell you, when it's uh, 5.30 and I haven't had anything to eat for a while, that, that sounds, sounds good. Just saying, dear, if you're listening. Um, taking a look at your weather forecast, partly cloudy tonight, a low around 55. Tomorrow, some clouds. Pleasant temperatures, though, a high of 81. Tomorrow night, partly cloudy with a low of 55. Partly cloudy on Thursday, high of 72. And uh, Thursday night, generally fair skies with a low of 52. All in all, pretty good-looking forecast. Weather brought to you by our friends at the Ironwood Golf and Country Club. Whether you're looking to spend your fall courtside or greenside, Ironwood Golf and Country Club offers a variety of memberships tailored to fit your lifestyle with no initiation fee required. The fall is no doubt about it, the best golf weather in eastern North Carolina. Get out to Ironwood. They're offering a variety of memberships tailored to fit your lifestyle. No initiation fee required. Remember, if you're headed down to the beach at all this fall, pack your clubs because Ironwood members receive reciprocal golf and dining privileges at the Beaufort Club in Beaufort and Compass Point Golf Club and Magnolia Greens located near Wilmington. For more information, find out how you can join Contact Jenna Doyle at 252-752-4653. Join in the fun at Ironwood today, a part of the Renaissance Golf Group. Speaking of weather, a 2.6 magnitude earthquake struck the North Carolina-Virginia border around 5 a.m. today. 1.74 miles deep, hit about 6 miles east-southeast of Independence, Virginia, that would be about 20 miles northwest of Mount Airy, North Carolina. More than 70 people said they felt the tremor, and uh, which usually that's that's about uh, where it needs to be, just to barely feel it, uh, feel it, and no damage caused by the earthquake. Here's a shocker: News and Observer is reporting former President Barack Hussein Obama earlier today endorsed North Carolina's Democrat Senate candidate Sherry Beasley. Who would have guessed? What a shocker. Yeah. This is big news. Uh, this is very positive, and it comes out of New York. Would North Carolina do this? I don't think so. Not with our current Supreme Court. Now, maybe after uh, November 8th, they would. New York Supreme Court reinstates all employees fired for being unvaccinated and they're ordered to pay. The state of New York is ordered to pay all their back pay. Now, by the way, here is another example of individuals violating people's civil rights. I mean, some individual had to come up with this idea. Nope, we're not going to do it. No, we're not going to. Whether it's the mayor or governor of New York, they're both Democrats. New York City is Democrat mayor, state of New York. Democrat governors, and yet they are not punished. Who's going to be punished? The taxpayers of New York. New York State Supreme Court has reinstated all employees who were fired for not being vaccinated, ordering back pay, and saying their rights have been violated. The court found Monday that being vaccinated does not prevent an individual from contracting or transmitting COVID-19. New York Mayor Eric Adams claimed earlier this year that his administration would not rehire employees who had been fired over their vaccination status. Now, consider a lot of these were nurses, in other words, first responders, nurses, police, and firefighters. New York City alone, 
fired roughly 1,400 employees for being unvaccinated. Uh, That started with uh, Bill de Blasio, that Marxist. Many of those fired were police officers and firefighters, Fox reports. Uh, New York Fire Department Uniformed Firefighters Association President Andrew Ansbro and uh, New York Uniformed Fire Officers Association President James McCarthy condemned Adams earlier this year. We are here to say that we support the revocation of the vaccine mandate that the mayor announced on Thursday. McCarthy said we think that it should be extended as well. Um, Of course, this is what they said earlier in the year. Anyway, the bottom line is all these people that were canned are now being reinstated by orders of the New York Supreme Court. Interestingly, that, along with another report, let me find it in my pile here. Um, Yeah, a judge has ordered, the Epic Times is reporting, a judge has ordered Anthony Fauci, Queen Nancy Pelosi, I will do anything. And other officials to be deposed in big tech censorship case. A federal order on October the 21st that Anthony Fauci and other top officials testified under oath at depositions in a case that has uncovered evidence of alleged federal government collusion with big tech companies to censor users. The attorneys general of Louisiana and Missouri and other plaintiffs allege that Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, and President Joe Biden's chief medical advisor and other defendants colluded and coerced social media companies to suppress disfavored speakers' viewpoints and content regarding COVID-19. U.S. District Judge Terry Dowdy went a step further than a previous ruling that forced written testimonies and ordered Fauci and other defendants to testify under oath at depositions. Quote, after finding documentation and a collusive relationship between the Biden administration and social media companies to censor free uh, free speech, we immediately filed a motion to get these officials under oath, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt said in a statement. It's high time we shined a light on the censorship enterprises and forced these officials to come clean to the American people. And this ruling will allow us to do just that. We keep pressing for the truth. There's a new organization out called New Civil Liberties Alliance. They have joined in in the lawsuit. For the first time, Dr. Fauci and seven other federal officials responsible for running an unlawful censorship enterprise will have to answer these questions. In his ruling, Dowdy said he agreed with plaintiffs that Fauci's previous self-serving blanket denials about his role censoring views on social media could not be taken at face value. The plaintiffs argued that Fauci allegedly insisted on the censorship of speech backed by great scientific credibility with enormous potential nationwide for nationwide impact that contradicted his views. I mean, you remember him saying that. If you disagree with Fauci, you're disagreeing with science. What an arrogant somebody. Uh, By the way, it not only would be uh, all the other people that we have mentioned, but it would also be uh, Jen Psaki the former press secretary, that she pushed hard for the censorship. I mean, this thank you. Thank you to, the, to this judge, uh, U.S. District Judge Terry Dowdy. That, now, will anything happen over this? Will they actually, will they be punished in some way? You can only hope so. 
Because every kind, every time the liberals do something like this, you know, there's a, a slap on the wrist, and next time it comes around, they said, let's do it again. We got away with it before. There needs to be some sort of punitive response to what these people have done. And step one, New York Supreme Court is reinstating. It will be interesting to see if the uh, United States Supreme Court would uh, somehow, if the right case comes along, reinstate our military who have been let go. We'll have to follow that as well. Stay with us. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. Ride and shotgun with your five o'clock drive. Well, the drive home should be a delight. This is Tom Lamprecht with more news and views on Talk ninety six three and one zero three seven. Numerous outlets are reporting that Ash Carter, who served as President Barack Hussein Obama's Secretary of Defense from 2015 to 2017, passed away today at the age of 68. Carter died from a sudden cardiac event while in Boston, according to ABC News. The Daily Caller is reporting just today. Podcast host Megan Kelly announced yesterday that her sister passed away over the weekend suddenly. Something really sad happened in our family over the weekend. Kelly said, my sister died. She was 58. Her name was Suzanne Crossley. She died Friday suddenly of a heart attack. The New York Post reported back on October the 23rd, a 13-year-old football player is back home after suffering a heart attack during the last game they played. Cash Hennessy suffered a heart attack on September the 17th in a football game in Rancho Cucamonga, California, for his Sam Demis team. He had been in the hospital for nearly a month. Uh, NFL draft diamonds. This was back in July. Sam Bruce, the former high school football player star died recently, died of a heart attack on, uh, in July of uh, 2022, just 24 years old. I, listen, I know that people have died of heart attacks a, a long, long time. Uh, is it just me or is this are there a lot more being reported now it is listen the, the the people that have produced the vaccine have said there is a relationship between especially in young men between uh getting the vaccine and uh heart issues it, it, i would really be curious as to uh what the status was of these individuals I, you, it's not in these stories i i dug for it but did they receive the vaccine or not i you know again uh it's probably going to be something that uh, is hushed and i don't i don't want to sound like you know it'd be a doomsdayer if you got the vaccine it, it's it's not common but it is certainly more frequent than it used to be it certainly that's just a that's just a unscientific non-medical observation town hall is reporting with just two weeks until the 2022 midterms msnbc host and former gop strategist nicole wallace presented a real fun idea on monday's installment of her show deadline inviting foreign interference into American elections. Yes, that's what she's promoting here. Here's what she had to say when she was interviewing Representative Democrat Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut. Cut one. 
Our elections in are so pervasive and they're so dire and they include violence. I mean, do you think it's time to ask for friends and allies to come over and help us monitor our elections? We used to do that in other burgeoning and threatened democracies. Yeah, no, Nicole, I'm not there yet. And I know why you're asking what you're asking. And you're not wrong, right? I mean, you know, the kind of intimidation that is threatened around polling places. I mean, you've seen the pictures of the guys with assault weapons near boxes. That stuff is intimidating. And again, that used to be sort of the province of, uh, I hate to use the term, but third world countries that didn't care about democracy. Um, but but uh, no, look, this is something for us to work out ourselves. And, um, you, you know, we, we at some point, the United States is going to need to collectively decide that not only are we going to oppose Russians and Chinese and North Koreans and Iranians messing around with our elections, we're not going to allow the Republican Party to do it either. And one of the most effective things we can do to take an awful lot of the vulnerabilities off the table, of course, would be to pass the Electoral Count Act uh, in the United States Congress, because that deals with a lot of the levers that they tried to use uh, after Donald Trump was defeated in November of 20. Uh, this is not the best idea anybody's come up with. Which country are you going to pick, by the way? Are you gonna, and would it come down? Well, let's ask the United Nations. They're unbiased. <laughs> yeah, right. Um. And this guy saying, this Jim Himes saying that, well, you know, we've all seen those pictures of people standing around with assault rifles. What are you talking about? First of all, the only stories, and I followed this really carefully over the last 12 years, the only stories I can recall about any intimidation at polling places was done by the left. The Antifas of the world, the Black Lives Matters of the world, the Black Panthers of the world. I'm sorry, that's exactly who was doing it. Don't insinuate that somehow it's the Republicans to blame for any violence. Just yesterday, a Marco Rubio canvasser got the tar beat out of him. As a side note, just curious, where was Nicole Wallace crying out for intervention when there was obvious disagreement over the 2020 presidential election. Now, I don't want any foreign country coming in here and telling us how we should run our elections or giving us the thumbs up or the thumbs down. But where was the outcry by Nicole? Isn't it curious that suddenly, and by the way, this is also uh, a a spotlight on the Democrats certainly know they're going to get a shellacking now. Because they're all coming out and saying, and I've got a, several stories in this, they're all insinuating, well, you know, these Republicans are cheating. They're cheating. We need to we need to bring in people from other countries to make sure there's not cheating going on. Heim said, at some point, the United States is going to need to collectively decide not only are we going to oppose Russians and Chinese and North Korean, uh, Koreans and Iranians messing around with our elections, we're not going to allow the Republican Party to do it either. That's exactly, you just heard him say that. Uh, are you still trying to sell us on the idea that the dossier was true and that the Hildebeest had nothing to do with it? And of course, the solution Heinz, Heinz presented uh, to the issue of the questioned elections, again, something Democrats perfected as a partisan uh, for two decades is to pass Democrat legislation. In other words, if there's issues here, if the Republicans would just vote on us on our election reform, everything would be fine. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Uh, on October 10th, former U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri voiced the idea on the same show, voiced the idea of foreign oversight and therefore potential interference in American elections. Cut to. I remember back in the day, Nicole, when the United States used to send election monitors all over the world to watch and make sure elections were held fairly. If people don't show up and vote in November in these midterms, we will have to have other countries sending monitors to America to watch our votes. Now, what she's saying there is if Democrats don't show up in the midterms and have Democrats win their elections, we'll have to have people come in and monitor. How about this, Claire? Has it ever occurred to you that people will not show up and vote for your party because they see that you're a bunch of Marxist buffoons? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of the fact that while your enthusiasm is low, it's because your policies stink? And by the way, that's not it. That's not only it. Former Secretary of State, the Hilda Beast herself, accused Republicans of plotting to steal the next presidential election. So the Hilda Beast and her like, her ilk, have been foaming at the mouth for the last 23 months that Trump is an election denier. After a number of things did happen that have never happened before in the history of U.S. elections, looked extremely questionable, even today, the goal of the January 6th committee is to accuse Trump of, among other things, not accepting the results of the 2020 election, thus trying to overthrow the United States government. In other words, he's trying to cause an insurrection. Yet the Hildebeest can come out and deny the 2024 elections that haven't even taken place yet. <laughs> I mean, do they know that their policies are that deep in the toilet that they don't have a chance of winning? I mean, all they got to do is look at who they would run. Who would they run? Pete Buttigieg? Joe Biden? Kamala Harris? Hillary? <laughs> who would they run? Actually, the only person that they could run that would have a chance at all of winning would be Joe Manchin. And his problem right now is the people of West Virginia are so PO'd at him that uh, he wouldn't carry his own state. Hey, we're going to take a last time out. Stay with us. We'll be right back. the show that really makes you think he is a genius he's all powerful he brought a kind of heat he could be the best just don't hurt yourself okay more news and views on talk 96.3 and 103.7 uh yes it is not looking good for the dems and they are already coming up with as many excuses as they possibly can during the daily briefing at the white house today just this afternoon Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked about the record voter turnout in Georgia just two weeks out from Election Day when asked specifically about President Joe Biden's calling voter integrity laws in the state. Jim Crow 2.0, Jean-Pierre claimed suppression is still present even with record numbers. 
In other words, don't believe your eyes. Don't believe your eyes when you see the record number of, of voters are coming out to vote in Georgia. It's all fake. There's still suppression going on. New numbers released Monday from Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger confirmed the state's new voter integrity laws passed last year, signed by Governor uh, Brian Kemp, have juiced record turnouts in just two weeks away from the uh, election day. Georgia voters continue to hit record-breaking turnout on the first mandatory Saturday of early voting. As of Sunday morning, approximately 740,000 Georgia voters have cast their ballot during in-person early voting, with a whopping 79,682 showing up on Saturday, October 22nd. Saturday's total marks an outstanding 159% increase from day six of the 2018 midterms. But there's voter suppression going on. (laughs) They are desperate. They are desperate. And yet it was interesting. There's another story in the pile here. Nancy Pelosi just cannot believe, she expressed today that she is in disbelief that anyone would vote for Republicans. She said this in an interview with the New York Times. But this is, I mean, this is rich. Part of it is, I cannot believe anybody would vote for these people, she said, before bashing Republicans' campaign strategy as endless lying and endless money. That's rich, Nancy. Endless lying? Yeah. This is, uh, while this is laughable and part of it is frustrating because you just, you know, when are the the lies going to stop? But uh, this ought to be good news if you're a conservative. If you plan uh, and you want to see Republicans take the House and the Senate, this is good news. They are really doing all they can to make up the excuses. And they have been complaining about Donald Trump for the last two years that he's an election denier. They're already making excuses. They're already getting their powder ready to fire the gun that says... It was a stolen election. We didn't lose it. It was stolen. (laughs) Hey, our thanks to Mitch Kokai. Great program. We'll do it again tomorrow at 5. See you then. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right. On the wrong track, Dunn Davis will hurt our jobs, finances, safety, and security. You see, Dawn Davis is being bankrolled by far-left party boss Nancy Pelosi. Those smear ads Don Davis is running are mostly funded by Nancy Pelosi. Under Pelosi, Don Davis would give us soaring inflation, open borders, trillions in out-of-control spending, sky-high taxes, and crippling regulations. In the legislature, 